Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome. Uh, I'm doing everything in my power not to uh, to try to not drive away people who think they don't like sports. I mean, we do shows like this. We're about to do a show that's all about baseball. And I know there are some of you out there who think that you don't like baseball. Well, no, you actually don't like baseball. You don't just think it. But there's so many ways in which you can relate to this. And it's going to be all around you starting today anyway. Uh, these divisional uh, series are starting and people are going to be talking about them. So you'd probably like to have something to talk about or some way in which this all would resonate. That's going to be sort of what we try to give you. I don't know. I'm, I find myself thinking of my father. My father was not a baseball fan. He was very unattached to the outcomes of baseball games, although I was watching a lot of them as a young person. But he he would glory in certain players. I, there was a catcher named Orlando McFarlane who he described as, uh, he remind, reminded him of a Bahamian or Bahamian general, which is complicated because, because the Bahamas do not have an army. They have no capacity to have generals. But, but I sort of knew what he meant anyway. And I have the same feeling. I'm a Red Sox fan. Uh, the Red Sox are in the playoffs. I'm not terribly attached to this Red Sox team, uh, and I won't feel terrible if they don't go all that far. Uh, at the moment, though, I mean, certain personalities grab you. And so the person I'm most attached to these days is Christian Vasquez, who's one of their two catchers. And I like it that he plays with this barely disguised fury all the time. Like the other team hit his car in the parking lot right before the game started. That's his overall attitude. And occasionally when he, he throws out a base runner, he'll uh, which he does a lot, he'll run back to the dugout at the end of the inning, shaking his head as if he just can't believe this base runner had the arrogance the temerity to try to steal a base on his watch. He's just angry. Uh, and so I'm kind of enjoying his anger right now. But maybe that's where I am emotionally. Anyway, we have people who know a lot more about baseball than I do. In the second segment today, we're going to talk specifically about George Springer, who's from this area, who's part of this multi-generational American melting pot story that's just amazing. But he's also this incredible rising star with the Houston Astros. And he may do great damage to the team that he grew up loving, the Boston Red Sox. Uh, but we're going to begin with Sam Miller, a national baseball writer at ESPN, co-author of The Only Rule it ha Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. You may recover, recall that we did uh, a lengthy show segment, or maybe even a whole show, I don't remember, about this book and about this whole idea. So, uh, Sam Miller, welcome to our conversation. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I, I thought maybe one thing that we could do, it's something that you've explored a lot, as we look at this collection of teams that now has postseason hopes. Well, maybe, first of all, we could start with last night. Last night was one of those games where this is a play-in game, a wild card game. It's win or go home. You have one chance to do it. Colorado Rockies, Arizona Diamondbacks. And it did, it did seem like one of those games that, that, that gratifies people in the sense that you think you've seen everything but you haven't seen this, right? One of the things that happened was a, a relief pitcher hitting a triple. How, how big a deal was that? <laughs> uh, well, it, in a sort of just numerical sense, it was the first time in history that a pitcher has, uh, I guess a relief pitcher has tripled uh, in a postseason game. And, you know, the, the idea that the season, uh, the idea that the season would come down to Archie Bradley batting at all 
uh, is already so unpredictable. And, you know, there's something interesting about this season, which is that as far as I can tell, I, I, I believe this is true, not one playoff spot or anything came down to a single game. So there was no team that missed the playoffs by a game. There was no team that missed the division uh, crowned by a game. And so in a sense, in retrospect, we can say that literally nothing that happened in the season by itself mattered because each of these games is one self-contained unit. And it doesn't matter whether you lose 50 to nothing uh, or one to nothing, a loss is a loss and, and we reset. And so you can look back at, you know, some air that you made in, in June and doesn't matter how much it costs your team or how much a home run helped your team. Ultimately, since nothing came down to a single game, every one of these outcomes could have changed and, uh, in, you know, in isolation. And the season still would have been right where we are right now, right? And that's kind of um, just a fact of having a 162-game season where, where it takes a very long time to decide who's going to go to the playoffs. Uh, and we build up massive numbers of trials, and so it might not be that one play matters well now you get to the postseason and everything is decided by one game a lot of times there will be postseason series that aren't but a lot of them will be and of course the wild card playing games uh, are explicitly a winner take all one game uh, matchup between two teams and so you end up with these situations where the stakes are uh, unnaturally high um, you know sort of exponentially higher than they could ever be in the regular season and you look out in these incredible stakes and there is a relief pitcher batting and already you've got a bizarre situation that you would never have predicted before the game starts. But then since baseball is this weird mix of like 70% skill and 30% luck in any given play, um, you know, sometimes that relief pitcher batting will hit a triple and it will prove to be the sort of key hit in the entire game. I mean, we should explain to the non-baseball fans listening, triples are the rarest form of hit, uh, and they require uh, a little bit of help usually from the outfielder and a certain amount of speed usually from uh, the base runner. Uh, this is kind of, you know, a, a pitcher who doesn't hit that much and doesn't hit that well, doesn't necessarily run that well. Torrey Lavula, who's the manager of the Diamondbacks, uh, uh, as he was watching this pitcher uh, approach second, he says, said, I was thinking, please stop right there. I was thinking, we're good. I could see him turn that corner and pull a hamstring sliding. Our pitchers don't practice sliding very often. No, none of those that bad those bad things happen. But just the, even the notion of the manager sitting there helplessly in the dugout, going, "Please, please stop! <laughs> don't yeah, run to well, third. The, the fact the fact that he is so inexperienced uh, as a base runner uh, probably helps to explain why he bothered to go for three. <laughs> if, if he if he'd done it a hundred times, he'd know that. As a pitcher, you pull up at second, you sort of ease in, you get the jacket on, uh, someone runs out with the jacket, and, and you don't push it. But, you know, this is like a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing for this guy, and he doesn't know when he's supposed to stop. We're lucky he stopped at third. Right. And, of course, then he went out there and got uncustomarily lit up uh, as a pitcher uh, later on. But we can't dwell on this. I want to ask you— Advise somebody who's listening to this who doesn't have an affiliation, doesn't have a rooting interest, but would maybe be able to gravitate towards a team based on its personality or based on something that wasn't really strictly baseball-ian. Who would you advise them to gravitate towards? Hmm. Well, the most um, common, I think, if you turn on a, a game or a sport that you don't have a rooting interest in, 
I think the most common human instinct is to root for the underdog. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us do it. Uh, there's lots of science that shows that we do it. Uh, and if you want to root for an underdog in this postseason, uh, it would be the Arizona Diamondbacks, I think, who, um, along with the uh, – this season was, in a, in a lot of ways, uncharacteristically predictable. All six teams that won their divisions were the favorites. And that never happened, but it did this year. These are good teams that were supposed to be good. The Diamondbacks are the, the really the clear exception of a team that struggled last year, uh, fired its general manager, uh, was uh, not expected to be very competitive this year, and really didn't do much in the offseason to change things, but had a real good core of young players. Uh, and Well, not that young, but a good core of players. Um, and everything came together. They have phenomenal pitching, uh, probably the best pitching staff in the National League, uh, and with uh, you know a, a not unreasonable payroll and not a ton of high-profile players, uh, they are the, the team that you would probably least have expected to see in the postseason, and that in some ways would be the most satisfying. So, so there's one. Yeah. So actually, John, Jonathan McNichol is pointing out that they have snakes on their uniforms, and that's a they, reason to not root for them. Um, they uh, they also Terrence. Look, they do have, by the way, the ugliest uniforms, and they have about 75 different versions of them, <laughs> uh, some of them uglier than others. Uh, and they historically have, have really struggled to find a decent uniform. So uh, maybe if you're turning on the radio more than if you turn on the TV, you can root for them by default. I am not an underdog rooter. I believe the opposite. I think that rooting for the underdog uh, is basically a, a nihilistic view of, of the world and the sport where nothing matters, and so you root for the least likely and most topsy-turvy outcome. I prefer to root for the team that seems to deserve it the most because they were smart and worked hard and put things together and, uh, and, and is good. And so if you're going for the best team, uh, probably that would be the Cleveland Indians, uh, although this is a, a year where there are a lot of really great teams that are – at a, at a very high level. But the Indians, um, you know, they set the American League record with a winning streak in the summer, so that got them a lot of attention. They went to the seventh game of the World Series last year, so that got them a lot of attention. But they're just a phenomenal team with incredible pitchers, most of the same core that was there last year, a lot of guys who smile, um, some good good running team jokes. Uh, and uh, and they are, uh, I guess, if, if you want your underdog uh, itch fulfilled. You can sort of still get that because they play for the smallest crowds, among the smallest crowds in baseball. They have one of the smallest payrolls in baseball. It's been a decades-long struggle for Cleveland to uh, build and keep good teams together because they just have such a hard time competing financially uh, with teams like the uh, Yankees and the Red Sox, uh, and they've really done it this year. Um, and uh, They also have a, what, 63 63- year is it is it it's it, even longer than that it's even longer than that isn't it they have a long play uh, right. drought without a world Series. right they they are the most baseball. persuasively accursed franchise now that the other curses have been lifted although if they win then you have to figure out who who now let's say they won the world series like who would be yeah. the new accursed i mean the astros have never won and they've existed since 1962 or something right maybe they would be the new accursed franchise yeah, the in 1961 expansion started in baseball, and there are a number of expansion teams that have never won. None none as long back as the Astros, 
But if you're, for instance, a Mariners fan, uh, and they've never won either, uh, the odds are there's no real distinction between 1977 and 1961 to most of us, to me particularly. So I think that then it becomes a real challenge. I wrote about this last year after the Cubs uh, won, and I tried to look for that thing that we're still trying to stay alive to see in baseball. And there are so many teams that could claim to be cursed at this point because there are 30 teams and a lot of teams go generations without a World Series uh, that I'm not sure whether that devalues the cursed aspect of rooting in the postseason or whether it gives us far more storylines. And really, Cleveland is the one team that uh, exists outside of that mass of teams. And so uh, if they win, it's true. We will have to sort of settle whether we still care or how long it takes for us to care about a uh, snake-bitten franchise. I guess the other uh, one that you could do, uh, and obviously uh, anybody who plays the Arizona Diamondbacks is theoretically snake-bitten, but the other one that you could sort of talk about, the Washington Nationals are in the playoffs this year. They weren't always the Washington Nationals. I think the last time they won a playoff game, they played in French or something, right? I mean, uh, they haven't even been playing baseball in English their entire existences, but I don't think that they've had much success. Uh, yeah, I, I have a hard time feeling a, a whole lot of sympathy for the, uh, for the woe-begotten Washington fan who's had to go a whole 13 years without seeing a, a, a local team win a World Series. I mean, they didn't have a team in Washington for many years before that. Uh, but the Nationals have had a nice run of competitive teams, and uh, you, you could root for them. I mean, they're an exciting, they're a fun team. The core of the Nationals is basically – uh, that seven, what, eight years ago, I think they were so bad that they got the first pick mm-hmm. in the amateur draft two years in a row, which means they got to sign uh, whichever amateur player they wanted to before anybody else could sign those guys. And they got probably the best college pitching prospect in history and the best uh, high school hitting prospect in history, basically the two most hyped amateurs in history. Uh, and those two guys, Steven Strasburg, the pitcher, and Bryce Harper, the hitter, have both turned into extremely good major leaguers. Uh, they have other great players, but this is the Nationals would be satisfying because this is a storyline that we've been uh, that was kind of introduced to us a decade ago when we were first hearing rumors of this guy Strasburg at San Diego State and this guy Harper playing uh, as a sophomore in in uh, in Nevada. And so to see this come together in a championship would be fitting and would tell us that baseball does sometimes work the way that we project it to. All right. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, Sam's going to stay with us. We're going to talk a little bit about one specific player. Maybe we'll, if we have time, we can talk about a few specific players, but we want to uh, cover a little bit of George Springer because of the remarkable and very local for us story of George Springer. I love baseball. Welcome back. So many things we need to do and not enough time. Uh, In the final segment of today's show, uh, you're going to hear almost an entire episode of Jonathan, producer Jonathan McNichols' terrific podcast, uh, the second first season. And this is about 
what we like to call a real character, uh, a guy named Jerry Weinstein, who is the manager, was the manager anyway this past season uh, of the Hartford Yard Goats. So um, stay tuned for that. It'll be after a fundraising break. Um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about, I wish I had a whole show to talk about the Springer family. They're really, really interesting. Uh, George Springer Sr. came here at the age of 17, all alone on a boat from Panama with a dream of becoming a professional baseball pitcher. Uh, he um, went to what was then called, I think, the Connecticut Teachers College. Uh, played for them, blew out his arm, and then became a whole bunch of other amazing things in the world of education and progressive politics. Um, his son, also a terrific uh, athlete, uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about that. And now his grandson uh, is uh, an amazing athlete uh, at the major league level. Uh, with us are uh, the aforementioned Sam Miller, a national baseball writer at ESPN and co-author of uh, The Only Rule is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment, Building a New Kind of Baseball Team, and Dom Amore, who covers baseball and UConn men's basketball for the Hartford Current. Sam, I'm going to start with you before we go into the background of George Springer. Um, how good is George Springer right now, and what's, what makes him special as a baseball player? Oh, he's probably around, I, I would guess he's uh, around the 10th best player in the American League and one of the 20 best players in the major leagues. He's a really phenomenally well-rounded player who um, can play center field, which is the most important outfield position. He can play it well. He's got speed. He's got power. Um, he's, uh, you know, been able to to limit his strikeout some, and and he's really developed into a, a phenomenal player. I mean, they they the, the cliche in baseball is to refer to a player who's a five-tool player who can do everything above average or better. And Springer is sort of the ideal of that, and he looks like a golden god. I'm not sure anybody in baseball looks better in a uniform. <laughs> um, he does, and uh, so Dom Amore, he he also is that. Not completely unusual thing, but fairly remarkable thing. A leadoff hitter who can jack 34 homers, right, Dom? Well, you know what? It's something that's uh, that's becoming more and more common uh, in baseball today. Is 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 managers are putting their their top threats, their top hitters, up as high in the lineup as they can, so they could get uh, as many at bats. So we see Aaron Judge hitting second for the Yankees instead of third or fourth. We saw Batista hitting leadoff a lot of the year for for uh, Toronto. We see Bryce Harper hitting second frequently. So it's not unusual uh, in today's game, but it's been, you know, uh, Bobby Bonds, Barry's father, hit leadoff for much of his career, was a 30-homer, 30 30-steal 30 guy, and uh, Alfonso Soriano made a name for himself as a leadoff hitter as well. Uh, there's a lot of advantages to it, and he's a guy that um, – very often gives the the Astros a, a jolt right from the start. Kind of, it's a tone really is a tone setter more than a table setter in that leadoff spot. So, Don, very quickly, and we, I'm, I apologize that we are pressed for time because I want to tell this story too. But yeah. the Springer family is amazing, right? This, yeah, this, yeah. this, go ahead, give us a sense of this. Uh, well, they really, are, you know, his sister is is a top level athlete, a college athlete, and his mother is a, a gymnast. And I think that really is something that that is almost we talk, we I know. We've talked about George being a five-tool player. He's almost a six-tool player because he has this tremendous agility and balance and the ability to do backflips uh, out there on the field. Uh, not that that's useful in winning games, but it kind of shows you uh, how he's able to make great catches in center field and, and do some things with the, with the bat, with his core strength. Um, he, he's a kid that, as an 11-year-old kid, was very undersized. But because of this phenomenal all-around athletic ability, uh, was able to compete with much older, much bigger kids, and then he grew into his body. And, and while this was happening, you know, he had a, a stuttering problem, a speech impediment, which uh, he just was able to handle without 
any self-consciousness at all. He kind of, uh, you know, helped to, to talk to us where you really don't really notice it much anymore anyway. But still, he's, he's really made a point as he's become a famous player to let kids know that, hey, it's okay. That that's who you are. That's part of who you are. If you do have a, a speech impediment, and, uh, and 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 it's really really a wonderful role model for for kids who who could somehow you know kind of withdraw into themselves when they have that kind of problem. It's just it is great to see his exuberance and his personality. I just think he, he sets a great example for for young kids, which you know is something that 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 you know pro athletes need to do maybe a better job of today. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned his grandfather's father, I think, yeah. played in the Little League World Series, right? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. His father is a terrific athlete. And, uh, and yeah, and, and his sister, I believe, is at Ohio State. Uh, but, yeah, the, he, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely athletic family. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a kid that really also put that UConn program on the map. You know, they have had uh, they have a number of major leaguers in the last few years. In fact, more major leaguers than NBA players in recent years have come out of UConn. Yeah, that's really amazing. And, of yeah. course, Matt Barnes uh, yeah. of the Red Sox uh, and, and George are really good friends. Hey, you know, Sam Miller, uh, Dom just expanded the number of tools. Uh, and uh, I note today that there's a possibility of a player coming over from Japan next year who might be a 10-tool player, right, <laughs> Sam? Uh, this is, I mean, it's interesting that we were talking about the relief pitcher hitting the triple because I think basically Babe Ruth came in from the outfield in 1918 or something and pitched and then hit a triple. This, is this guy coming from Japan? Is Are we going to see a guy who plays both ways, as they say? So this guy, uh, this is Shohei Otani, who is uh, the best pitcher in Japan right now and, and uh, last year uh, led a, the league in a bunch of hitting categories as a designated hitter. And the general consensus is that no major league team particularly would want to spend what it would take to employ him and then risk him by using him both ways. And I've looked at whether uh, the, the loss in production on each side of the field uh, would come from being sort of stretched to that degree. But the thing is that Otani, A, really wants to do it. He wants to kind of be the Babe Ruth of the modern era, which hasn't happened. Uh, and he has an incredible amount of leverage uh, because – um, you know, he gets to choose where he goes. He's not uh, an amateur player who has to go to whichever team uh, happens to pick first in the draft. And so it's going to be really interesting to see. I, I think that uh, there is probably at least one team that would uh, say yes to that. And uh, if that's his top priority, uh, that one team is going to have a huge leg up. I personally don't think that there's enough to be gained. I don't think he's a good enough hitter to justify using him regularly and costing him both uh, the risk of injury and some of the pitcher performance. But I will admit right up front that my analysis is based on a lot of guesses and a lot of assumptions about player performance uh, because we can't test this uh, empirically. There aren't a, uh, there isn't a large pool of players that we can draw lessons from. He's way out there. Uh, in the unprecedented. All right. Well, we know Tori Lavulo probably doesn't want him running around the base paths. Um, all right. Thanks to Sam Miller. Thanks to Dom Amore. We're about to go into a fundraising break. We love it if you contribute during our show, if you like our show. Mary from Bloomfield, a few hours ago, uh, she donated and she said, Colin McEnroe is a genius. See, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of attitude I want to see from all of you. It's the kind of comment I like when people donate. So please, when these nice people ask you to donate, do donate. And when you talk to the people on the phone or use the web, mention that I'm a genius because it just doesn't get said enough.
Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants, whose W-O-B-A is pretty good, but his BAPIP is sad. And by me, Kyone Wolf. You should see my strand rate. Amanda Fish is the replacement player they keep talking about, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Choo Choo Coleman. On tomorrow's show, the nose delves into several attempts to rebottle the lightning of Star Trek. And now, back to the show. From WMPR, this is the second first season, a behind-the-scenes podcast about the making of a baseball team on a year-long do-over. I'm Jonathan McNichol. Type 2 fun. This is one of Yard Goat's manager Jerry Weinstein's favorite little coinages. He uses it to mean work, which is to say Type 2 fun is not fun at all. He's got others, too, words like simplexity, or this one he has for a pitch that could be a strike or a ball, a straball. And it's not just these seemingly nonsensical, self-contradictory little chestnuts, either. Weinstein never played professional baseball. He never even tried to. But he has such a deep knowledge of the game that he makes a point of keeping the players aware that every piece of advice he gives them could be wrong. He's made a life out of teaching and coaching and developing baseball players, and the philosophy he's crafted rests mostly on empowering the players to teach and coach and develop themselves. He says repeatedly that his job is to eliminate his job, and it turns out that Jerry Weinstein's first season as manager of the Hartford Yard Goats will be his final season as the manager of any baseball team. There's no question Jerry's forgotten more baseball than I'll ever know. This is Chris Forbes, manager of player development for the Colorado Rockies. He's extremely detail-oriented. He's got a great field awareness and vision of the field. Obviously, it takes quite a bit of time to acquire that. When Forbes says quite a bit of time, he's kind of underselling it. Jerry Weinstein's first year as a professional baseball coach was 1966, when he managed UCLA's freshman team. That's 52 seasons ago. Well, you know, if you count, like I was 15 and playing Pony League in West L.A. and coaching Little League in Beverly Hills, if you count that, it's... (laughs) Yeah. Weinstein is 73 years old. The last he played was in college, and he looks like he's still in great shape, but at the same time, he's slight. His uniform pants hang loose. He's 5'7", a small guy with thick-rimmed glasses. In a dugout full of big, young baseball players and big, middle-aged former baseball player coaches, Weinstein almost looks like he doesn't belong. The intriguing thing about Jerry is he's a lifelong learner and he can look at a different angle on things, and he can pick up a new drill, or he can pick up a new terminology. He's managed or coached at pretty much every level, high school and college, the minor leagues and the major leagues, the Olympics. This year he managed Team Israel at the World Baseball Classic. He is always polishing his craft. He is always learning something. Weinstein has been in the Rockies organization for 11 seasons. He coached in the majors, but AA is the highest professional level where he's ever managed a team. Still, Jerry Weinstein is maybe the only yard goat I've talked to who really isn't trying to get to the big leagues. You know, I've been there and done that, and it was my desire to come back to the minor leagues because it's not about me winning and building my resume so uh, and, and climbing on the shoulders of the players. It's basically my job is to eliminate my job and to help the players achieve what they want to achieve. So I think that with the young guys, the way they have so much room to improve that you can have a, a greater impact. He just points stuff out that you're like, wow, you, he's just, the knowledge of the game that he has is, is unbelievable. This is Dom Nunez, a catcher on the yard goats. You sit back, come in the dugout, and you sit back, you're like, yeah, yeah that is the, different to look at it from that perspective. So, Well, I, it's kind of like guided discovery. 
you know, and I'm really a big believer in the Socratic method of teaching and what do you think? I mean, he when he's on the top step right there, he's locked in the game like someone, like nobody I've ever met in my life. I mean, he does not miss a play, I promise. They're going to go through a player development environment where they're going to get good information, they're going to get average information, and they may get bad information. They better have a filter to know which is which works for them. Sometimes a little overwhelming for guys. I mean, every single play he's turning around and, and pointing out, you know, what, well, we should have done better, blah, blah, blah. But they understand that I may be right and I may be wrong, but my intent is to help them and not help me. And, and the information is, is handed out with good intent. But every, you know, there's no always or nevers in this game. There's not one thing that works for everybody, and you've got to figure out what works for you. And they're going to have to make subtle little esoteric adjustments continually in this game, and they can't, they can't depend upon the coach to do it. It's pretty special. I think the number one thing is just the accountability that he holds you to, um, the high standard that he holds me to, because I think he knows how good I can be. Nunez is really good, really good. Probably, the, well, for sure, the youngest catcher in this league. Really mature, not sensitive, knows how to filter information. At the beginning of the season, 22-year-old Dom Nunez was widely thought to be the second-best position player prospect in Hartford, behind only Ryan McMahon. Left-hand hitter with power, you know, and, and he can hit fastballs on the inner half of the plate. And, and people know that. It's the and people know that part that's really shown up in Nunez's performance this season. And so consequently they pitch him away and throw him a lot of off-speed pitches away and he has not yet uh, mastered the ability to handle that type of pitch. If you looked at the back of Nunez's proverbial baseball card at his 2017 season, the first thing you'd probably notice is that he's hit 202. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Dom Nunez hasn't hit double-A pitching this year. Jeffrey Paternostro writes about prospects for baseball prospectus. You know, he can run into one every once in a while. There's some power, and he knows the strike zone very well. These are all good things. These are all, like, sort of projectable things that you'd think would serve him well even at this level, but it's just, it doesn't pop. And from what I've seen, there's not a ton of bat speed. The contact's not particularly loud. But the thing I keep coming back to is catchers are weird. Catchers have so many defensive responsibilities, managing the pitching staff, calling a game, just the day-to-day, you know, knowing the hitters, knowing your pitchers. There's so much sort of mental space, mental energy taken up with that. You know, you still have to go out and take BP every day. You have to figure out how to hit the opposing team's pitchers. There's the daily grind of being a catcher. It's the you know, the most physically demanding position on the diamond day in and day out. For me, I'm never going to touch the big leagues. If, if, if I can't catch, then that's, that's my game, you know. So I spend a lot of time back there, whether it's doing drills uh, with Jerry. We spend a lot of time in the cage, off the machine, out around the field, doing bunt defenses, doing plays at the plate, stuff like that, you know. Yeah, Nunez is in good hands doing drills with Jerry Weinstein. When Weinstein did play 50-something years ago, he played catcher. Coaching catchers has been a focus of his career ever since. When he was a coach in the big leagues for two seasons, he was the Rockies' catching coach. And in 2014, he wrote a book, a sort of soft-cover textbook, The Complete Handbook of Coaching Catchers. Jerry Weinstein literally wrote the book on coaching catchers. I call it simplexity. What I tell you. You know, we want to keep it simple, but there's some complex elements, especially from a pitch calling standpoint. Weinstein's full of all these little nuggets of wisdom about catching. Like that for the first pitch after a pitching change, the catcher should almost always call an off-speed pitch. Well, because if you watch games and whenever a catcher goes out or when a 
pitching coach comes out, high percentage of the time the next pitch is a fastball. A lot of times, you know, they really gear up for fastballs, and if you can throw an off-speed pitch, you know, that that will help you in that situation. Or like that for the first pitch of an inning, the catcher should almost never have to put a sign down to call the pitch. The pitcher and the catcher should figure it out in the dugout beforehand. Hey, who's coming up, and you know, what's the situation? How we're going to attack him? You know, so that preparation, so we're not just winging it out there. And one of my favorites, it's Jerry's thought that when a pitcher is angry, when he's mad about his own performance or something a hitter did or a call an umpire made or whatever, the catcher should try to use that anger to motivate the pitcher. Yeah, some guys, some guys, you know, when they get pissed and they turn their energizer up and they're better. Yeah, they make it work for them. And some guys don't, you know. And sometimes when we see a guy... You know, in, in rage, we think, oh, hey, now calm down. Well, maybe maybe he operates best when when he's at that level of arousal. You know, at the, and again, that's knowing your individual pitchers. So the catcher is like a psychologist. I mean, it's, I guess what I'm really interested in is the catcher's part of, like, the almost part of the coaching staff. He's a psychologist. I mean, you're knowing the personalities of, of your, the people you're dealing with, not just not just pitchers, but anybody on the team because right. you're, you're basically the quarterback. You know, you're looking out at the defense and you know and you're pretty much running the show he's the bridge between the coaching staff and the team this was a monday afternoon in late august the opening day of a series against the altoona curve i'd met weinstein at the park at about 11 in the morning but i'm told he gets there most days by 10 on the days of night games which are most of the days in the baseball season that makes for a 12 or 13 hour work day at 73. One for five, six for 15. The player's day starts by one with meetings and practices and workouts, lots of type two fun. Yes. And the catchers probably have the heaviest workload in part because while the players are partly responsible for developing themselves, the catchers are also partly responsible for developing the pitchers. Too bad misses both out of the ballpark. This was about 1.30 and Dom Nunez was catching a simulated game for pitcher Craig Schlitter a second-half call-up from the high-A Lancaster Jethawks. He's had some struggles here. You know, he hasn't had, from talking to the manager and pitching coach in Lancaster, you know, what they said he could do, he has not done what he can do here yet. Schlitter won 10 games in the first half of the season and was leading the high-A California League in wins and innings pitched when he was promoted to double-A. After the call-up, he had an ERA over 10, over eight starts. He hasn't had good location, and quality of his pitches have not been great and he's been working you know when he when he, he's gone out there I think command's been a little off you want every guy that you catch to, to do good and even if they're having rough days they don't have their best stuff your job just becomes that much more important to try and get them through however many innings we can get through and keep the game in and reach and so Nunez and his manager and some other guys are out early in the afternoon working with Schlitter on his command seven for 20 the idea with the drill is to throw 20 pitches against hitters and hit your spots to hit the catcher's glove with as many pitches as possible. Yeah, within like a three to six inch radius of my glove. Um, maybe in high A and low A, you know, when you miss your spot, you get away with it a little bit more. The hitters here are definitely another, they're pretty close to big league hitters, I would say. Um, they take care of mistakes. Also, zones are bigger, too. I think umpire zones are smaller at this level. I know they are because being behind the plate, um, definitely a little bit a little bit tighter. Catchers, of course, have to have a real fluency with the strike zone, and skills in this area are just becoming more and more important. 
because one of the major trends I think we've seen recently in player development and sort of across Major League Baseball is the emphasis on catcher receiving or catcher framing. This is Jeffrey Paternostro from Baseball Prospectus. The ability to keep borderline strike strikes and to make borderline ball strikes, essentially. You know, usually in a game, three or four pitches determine the outcome of, of, a, of a ball game. And so, you know, it might be as subtle as, you know, that pitch could have been a strike or could have been a ball. Mm, here it is. I call them straw balls. They could be strikes, could be balls. You're going to catch, in a given season as a catcher, 2,500 pitches. You're talking about fractional runs on any given pitch, but it, it adds up over the long haul. And some of the command stuff bleeds into some of the framing stuff with the idea that command might be you're making strikes that are easier for the catcher to catch and also aren't in the middle of the plate. So there's an interaction between the catcher framing the pitch and the pitcher putting it in a spot where the catcher can frame it. Essentially what we're talking about is fooling umpires, but to present the pitch as a strike, or in some cases present a strike as a strike and not make it look like a ball, the actual physical tools, you know, soft hands, the way you receive, the way you move your body as the pitch comes in, even the way you set up for it. He's a really good pitch catcher. He gets a lot of marginal pitches, especially low balls for strikes now, because we do the metrics on him. He's one of the best guys, if not the best guy in our organization. Now he's starting to get the high ball. He's catching a little bit more up to the plate and manipulating it into the zone. So there's 134 catchers in AA baseball this year. Dom Nunez, by our numbers, ranks fourth in his defensive contributions. Uh, and a lot of that, the vast majority of that is tied up in his ability to frame strikes. He's been worth, in total, 11 runs above average defensively. That's incredibly valuable to a team. The general rule of thumb is that every 10 runs add up to a win, which would translate to Don Nunez being responsible for more than a whole yard goat's win, based almost just on his ability to make the pitches he catches look like strikes. When you catch it, you kind of know it's a ball, but maybe for him, from his perspective or pitcher's perspective, it looks like a strike, you know. And I try to make it good, look as good as possible and, and try and do my job to get a strike. And it's, I mean, that honestly, that's probably the, the most fun thing about being a catcher is that, that part of the game is that I can do that. There was a, an early law, sort of a baseball analysis called Nichols' Law of Catcher Defense, which said that a catcher's defensive reputation will be inversely proportional to how well he hits. Sort of the idea that if this guy doesn't hit, well, he must be a good defensive catcher, or, or why else would he be playing Major League Baseball? It was kind of seen as a, as a snarky thing. Well, as it turns out, that is in many cases true. But still, a 202 batting average is a 202 batting average. I asked Chris Forbes from the Rockies what they're thinking about it. He's doing a very mature thing at the plate, being able to separate at bats from what he does behind the plate. And even at the plate, I, I like where his swing is at. He's seen the ball well, taking his walks. You know, so it's just probably hopefully a matter of time before we get him to where he feels comfortable and consistent. I don't even know if you would answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you are you worried at all? Uh, no. No, not right now. I mean, I'm pretty comfortable telling you I don't think Dom Nunez is going to be an above-average major league hitter. I'm less comfortable telling you he's not going to be an above-average major league catcher. But there's 30 major league catchers, man, and it's a very difficult job to fill. And the fact that Dom Nunez can even do it in double-A, I think, says something about him as a player. Joe's not here anymore. Yeah, 
Joe was traded. Yeah. Kramer's hurt. Matheson is away and chase up. By 2.30, with more than seven hours and a two-to-nothing loss still left in their workday, Jerry Weinstein and his catchers had moved on to a different version of Type 2 fun, a meeting to go over Altoona's roster, looking for strengths to avoid and weaknesses to exploit. Reyes, Bunner, Runner. Matheson, Will, Bunt, Run. In the morning, I'd asked Weinstein about next year, about what he planned to do at age 74. You know, I think at this point I'm going to, you know, maybe look for plan B. You know, uh, I think dragging my wife around uh, for 142 games might be something that's not in the cards. Jerry and his wife Andrea have been married for 50 years, for almost all of his baseball career. He won't coach again next year, but he plans to stay in baseball, maybe in player development, probably doing a fair amount of speaking. Maybe he'll even write another book. Who knows? You know, I'm not a golfer. I like to work out. I like to read. I like to write. I'm a pretty shallow person. I get this one cylinder. And plus, I think when you get older, you got to, you, your, your brain gets a little stiff. And if you don't do something, <laughs> you're in jeopardy to, to, to be a babbler. And, and, you know, being around young players, young coaches, and also mentoring coaches and players, not only baseball, but, you know, this is a life you know, a life experience, you know, it's, you know, there is life after baseball, even though I haven't found it. Suchi uh, is still here, got a lot of strikeouts, probably close to 50% strikeouts, slow bat. Hard in. Yeah, hard in. Coming up on the second first season. And then they were out of it. I'm like, how can you be out of pork roll? You're in the middle of something. It's not an artisanal product. <laughs> you know, it's hard to believe. April feels like it's seven years ago when we opened this building up and brought people, fans into it. And this episode of the second first season was edited by Jeff Cohen and Katie Tolarski. Heather Brandon is the digital editor. Katie Tolarski is the executive producer. The sports highlights in this episode featured Drew Goodman, George Frazier, and Jeff Hewson on AT&T Sportsnet Rocky Mountain, and Chip Carey and Joe Simpson on Fox Sports Southeast. Our theme song is by the great Jim Chapdelaine. You can find the second first season on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on the web at wnpr.org secondfirst. You can find me on Twitter at McNichol Pants. The second first season is a production of WNPR. I'm Jonathan McNichol.